While we do that, while you guys get Bibles, I think it's important that I share something with you guys this morning, and that is um, my stance on the book of Revelation. Uh, it's really funny to be standing up here. Lance and I have had some great discussions about the book, and shock, we don't agree on everything, and I still work here, and it's okay. Um, but I thought in order for me to teach this morning, you'd have to have at least the filter in your mind of where I'm coming from, where I stand, and how I look at the book of Revelation. I've been doing ministry for 12 years. I've never taught the book of Revelation. I have read it, so we've got that going for me. Um, and I do have a stand on it. However, my stand is, is pretty um, not well removed, somewhat hands off. Here's the thing. The book of Revelation seems to be driven uh, in many ways by a lot of our, our fears and a lot of emotions. And people get really wrapped up in, in what it tells us about the very end of times. And it drives us to do certain things. And here's where I stand with this book uh, in my own walk. And that is this. I am more concerned with life today and loving people today and engaging people with Christ today than I am concerned with the end of times. Because here's my, 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 my feeling on this is quite simple. Yes, Jesus is coming back. If he should come back in my lifetime, my main concern is that I get to go with him. And that as many people as I have come in contact with and shared the love of Christ with, they get to go with him too. That's my main concern. What happens when he comes back? How it happens? When it happens? You know what? I'll be really honest. I, I'm not overly concerned. Because I'm really caught up in trying to love people through Jesus now and living my life for Christ now. So as I come at you guys this morning, you guys will have to understand that's, that's the stance that I'm preaching from. That's what drives me. The book of Revelation is incredible. It's beautiful. It's encouraging. Yeah, there's some shocking things inside of it. Hey, I'll let you guys know, I have, I have a millennial stance. I do. I'm a pan-millennialist. It means God's in control. It's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> Same thing with the tribulation. Do I believe that there's a rapture? The selfish part of me says, yes, because I'd love to get out of here as soon as possible. But, like we've heard throughout this series, maybe, maybe not. And that is our issue, and that's what drives us to where we are today. The sermon title for today is The Eye of the Storm. So as we, uh, as we get started, I don't have a quote for you guys. I just have, if you look at the back of your notes, there's no quote, there's no fill in the blank. There's just a lot of lines. So you guys feel free to doodle or write in whatever you want. Um, you know, it's, it's just space for you guys to do whatever. But this morning what I want to share with you is a bit of meteorological, meteoro, weather history. Because <laughs> meteorological is just really hard to say at nine in the morning. But I want to share a story with you. 1992, in September of 1992, the Hawaiian Islands were hit by Hurricane Iniki. Iniki rolled across the Pacific, and the eye of this storm passed right over the island of Kauai. And when the eye of the storm hit the island, there was an eerie calm. As the wall of the storm passed over, it left an opening with very little pressure, sunlight, it was almost as though the storm had passed, and many people thought this was the case. People came out, looking around, like, hey, storm's over. Except for the problem that within an hour and a half, the back wall of the storm came ripping through, 
and the winds were going in the opposite direction. So everything that had been pushed one way was ripped out going the other way. Everyone had come out thinking, oh, it's all over, it's all good, we're safe. And bam! Storm whips right back through and just devastates everything. And Nikki is still on record as one of the, uh, the largest, uh, most damaging Pacific storms we've ever seen. The eye of the storm presented this sort of false serenity for them. You guys, we've just come through six of the seven seals opening. We've seen a lot of things happen. So what's our task for tonight, or for this morning? Well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you back through. We're running a synopsis of all seven seals. We're actually going to do the first six, kind of a brief run back, a recap of where we've been. Then we're going to dive into the seventh seal. And we're going to see some really interesting things. So as we do that tonight, I just want you to kind of join me on this ride. I'll be kind of stopping through a few different places. I know you've been, uh, you've been getting options. I know Lance has been up here giving you lots of options. I'm just glad, you know, I'm here to give you answers. <laughs> they may be wrong, but they're answers. I, I like the option thing. I'm going to try and stick with that. But here we are. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We're going to verse 5. If you guys would open your Bibles to that place. I'm sorry I didn't bother to write the page number down because I forgot. It's all the way toward the right of your Bible. Just go that way. You hit the concordance, you've gone too far. All right. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Let's pray. God, this morning we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that its truth rings out. God, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes, you would open our minds and our hearts, that we might hear your word. God, that it would take root in our lives, that it would change who we are. God, that it would reveal in us more of your character, that it would compel us to engage with others, God, and engage with you. God, fall in this place this morning. Would you speak clearly? God, would you help me to get out of the way? would you shine through in this place that we would see your truth know your love and act accordingly in jesus name amen all right so that is where we start but we're going to actually take a jump back we have come through six of the seven seals that have been opened so far we've had a lot of discussions about quite a a bit of the uh, logistics of the scroll itself we've had the idea of is this happening in chronological order as we talked about, is the seal rolled up and, and then, or is the scroll rolled up and sealed part way? So every time you break a seal, you roll a little down. Is the scroll sealed all the way across? And so none of this is happening as we roll out. So you guys remember a few weeks back, Lance talked about the scroll as he even said in his own words, bored you to death with all of the dimensions of the scroll and the seals. Okay. So we've got the scroll. The seals have been broken. This is what we have seen so far. First, we see the first four seals broken and the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding outward. We looked at this through the filter of knowing or understanding that these are not just singular guys, but these are, these riders represent 
phases of God's judgment that is being unleashed through the Antichrist. Then as the first horseman comes out on the white horse, we see a counterfeit Messiah, uh, the Antichrist perhaps himself, riding out with a, a, a bestowed crown and an arrowless bow and the spirit of conquest. The idea that is it, it may be peaceful conquest, but conquest nonetheless. It may come in the form of roses and, and flowers and nice words at first. But then we see the second rider come out on the red horse. This is the rider that comes out and is the spirit of war, given the sword to take peace from the land. And he rides out. Then we see the third seal broken. And the third rider comes out on the black horse, carrying scales, seeing a quart of wheat for a day's wages, or three quarts of barley for a day's wages. As the idea of, as the result of conquest, then war, now we are left with the result of famine. And things are continuing to turn upside down. And then the final rider comes as the fourth seal is broken. And we see this rider on a pale horse. Death. With his traveling buddy, Hades. And we see this complete set of horsemen. And there again, are they waiting? Are they riding out in chronological order? We're still not sure. Scholars don't agree. But we still see them there, and it paints a very dark picture, somewhat bleak. When I think of these horsemen, and now this is where I reveal the inner nerd in me, uh, I'm a big uh, Lord of the Rings fan. So, every time I think of these four horsemen, I think of the wraiths in the Lord of the Rings, the guys in the black robes with the crazy horses, with the swords, and they're kind of creepy. And, and this is the vision I get. These guys are not nice. It's not pleasant. This is nothing that is uh, serene. It makes me uneasy. But then we get our first brief encouragement out of the seals when the fifth seal is broken. And John says, I saw under the throne, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of their, the testimony they had held, their faith in God. And they're crying out, Lord, how long? Lord, how long will it be until you seek justice for your world, until you avenge our blood? How long? I really dig this picture. Because God says, you know what, I'm going to deal with it. Just wait a little bit longer. I'm going to deal with this situation. I'm going to address this, but your number is not yet complete. More people have to walk through this. And obviously when we talked about that seal, we talked about what that meant. Will it be the entirety of all believers? Will it be just the, the martyrs coming out of the tribulation? We're still not certain. Once again, options. But the bottom line is that in the middle of this situation, God is responding to the needs of His kids. He's addressing the issue at hand. Listen, I hear your cries. I hear your pleas. Let me assure you, I'm going to deal with this. But first, we have to come to the perfect point in my timing. And he robes them in white, as though an assurance. And then we see the sixth seal break. And it just breaks loose. Sun turns black, moon turns red, earthquakes, sky rolls back like a scroll, mountains are pulled up, islands out of the ocean, it's like, bah! Love to see that one. God is unleashing the very wrath 
that he has just talked to his kids about. It's as though in, in, in the fifth seal he's saying, listen, I'm going to take care of it in the sixth seal. See, I'm dealing. I'm taking care of it. God's wrath starts to unfold. And there's a verse in here I want to pause on because it's really caused me just to, to really think in my own walk. And here's what it is. In chapter 6, in verse 15, and I know we're two chapters ahead of where I should be or before where I should be, but I really want to pause here for a minute. It says this, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This verse really causes me to reflect. And I would challenge you the same way because here we see these people crying out as God unleashes His wrath, as God unfolds His sovereign plan, they all cry out, but they cry out in the wrong direction. They hide among the rocks. They hide among the mountains. And then they cry out to the very rocks and mountains, Hide me! Save me! How can I get out of this? Well, guys, how many of us are in the same boat? How many of us look at the book of Revelation and wonder and think, how can I circumvent this circumstance? How can I get around what God is about to do? How can I get around what God is going to unleash? How can I avoid it? Ooh. I mean, really, let's look at this. I'll, get, I'll offer this out to you. I have never read one of uh, Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series books. Never. Never picked one up. I mean, I looked at the cover. Just, I've never read one. Didn't appeal to me. But they were wildly popular. Not just in the Christian world, but in the secular world. They were wildly popular, though, among Christians. And here's why. Check this out. It's a whole post-rapture view of what happens to the bad people. We all get to get out of here. They all get stuck with the bad rap. Woo! Really? Is that the way it works? As God's kids, are we looking for, are we expecting a get-out-of-jail-free card? Are we looking for a pass to all things that are negative? Again, selfishly, I say, sure, I'd love there to be a rapture. I'd love to have a sideline seat to be like, ooh, looking on from high going, wow, you could have avoided that if you knew Jesus. But the reality is, in my heart, I know that may not be the case. I can take no assurance in, in holding on to the fact that I might get out of here. Their question is, who can stand? Answer is simple. Anyone who believes on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior can stand. Period. You can't skate around that. Will we be those people that stand and cry out in the wrong direction? Or will we stand and will we cry out to God our Savior, saying, Lord, your wrath is coming. I know I'm yours. Will we lean on our faith and look to Jesus? Or will we continue to try and stand on our own? 
You guys, we've got to be confronted with that. We've got to be confronted with that verse. If we have Jesus, we can stand. We can walk. And if we don't get out of here till the very last scene, we will still stand with Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's where we are. As God's kids, we've got to know that. I look at it this way. If you think about the scene in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is in the throne room in heaven. He's looking up on the glory and majesty of God's throne room. And what does he cry out? Woe to me! I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And then what happens? The angel swoops down with a coal, touches his lips, purifies him. Then God calls out, who will I send? Who will go? And he says, I will go. Send me. As he stands before the mercy of God, the grace of God, he is sent forward to do God's work. Send me into the fray, God. Shouldn't that be more our hearts? We call out to the mercy, the grace of God, and then ask to be sent into the fray. Not to get out of it. Moving forward. We then see the 144,000 sealed and a great multitude in white. This is just last weekend, so we're not going to spend a bunch of time here. I just want to bring up a couple of quick things. Okay, we see this great multitude sealed by God. We see the multitude standing in white. Who are they? We're like, well... Could be the rest of the martyrs from the tribulation. Possibly. Could be all of God's kids. Could still be just the the multitude that was under the throne. Options. No matter which camp you set up in, no matter which little flag you throw up and say, that's my my option I'm going to stick with, I want you to be assured or rest in this promise that no matter who these people are, God's promise to them is the same. Therefore, oh, so I'm sorry. This is in verse 16 of chapter 7. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's promise to His kids. Then the end, you are mine and I will care for you. I will meet your needs. I will see that sorrow is done away with. I will see that you live in perfection into eternity. That is an incredible promise, an incredible encouragement, an incredible hope that we hold on to. That no matter what goes down at the end of it all, we stand before God, cleansed, purified, holy, taken care of. It's an amazing promise. So, then we come to the seventh seal. That brings us into chapter 8. And it says this, The seal was broken, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour.
That was awkward, wasn't it? Some of you guys were sitting here going, is he going to sit there for 30 minutes? (laughs) What? Okay, I want to pause for a minute, and we're going to kind of take a little rabbit trail while I, I kind of discuss this issue. There's 30 minutes of silence in heaven, which may help us deduce that there might not be any politicians in heaven. I'm not sure. Silence makes us completely uneasy. I did this last night. Now I'm done it now. I'm going to do it to the people in the next service. So shh, don't tell anybody. But I really kind of almost have a sadistic joy in sitting here watching everybody squirm. Because I'm doing it on purpose, but you guys have no idea. And so everyone's kind of sitting there doing the seed shuffle and like, what's he, has he lost his place? Has he lost his mind? You guys, silence for us is so foreign. But if we become people that, that intentionally find silence in our lives, we find a silent place. When I say silence, like I discussed this with my wife. We have four children. She goes, I'm a mom of four. I love silence. What do you mean people don't like silence? I love silence. I'm like, no, you love the absence of chaos. Because I've seen what her silence is. Her silence includes watching a TV show or listening to the radio, just without the kids screaming at her. That's her version of silence. It's dull noise. But silence in and of itself freaks us out. Because at that point, we're confronted with nothing but ourselves, our own thoughts, our own minds, and we have trouble finding peace in those moments. A couple of years back with the Young Adult Ministry, our, uh, our uh, worship service for the young adults, we, we did a series on the disciplines. And we did a night where we talked about silence. And over the course of an hour, we spent a total of 12 minutes in silence. 12 minutes you would have thought they were going to die. We didn't even do it all at once. We broke up the 12 minutes. Like two minutes here, three minutes there, two minutes over. Ah! The discomfort in the room was amazing. Because we need to learn to hold on to the idea of being silent before God. Taking times of actual silence to sit and reflect and listen You'd be amazed at what you hear when you turn everything off, tune everything out, and simply listen for the heart of God. The discipline of silence is something we could be uh, very fruitful in, in executing. But this silence, the silence in heaven, though it's kind of a weird anticlimactic response to the seventh seal being broken, you've got to imagine, you've just seen... Four seals in a row where the beasts around the throne come and see. Whoa, okay, and a voice like thunder. Then you see the multitudes under the altar crying out. Then you see the sixth seal broken. And you see thunder and earthquakes. And the sun turned black and the moon turned red. And I'm sure it's not very quiet as mountains are being uprooted. And then the seventh seal is broken. I almost bit it right in front of you guys. As the seventh seal is broken... Nothing. 
it. But it's completely rooted in Scripture. Zechariah 2.13 says this, Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. Psalm 76, verses 8 and 9. From heaven you pronounced judgment, and the land feared and was quiet when you rose up to judge, O God, to save all the afflicted of the land. Habakkuk, I can flip my Bible around. Habakkuk 2.20 But the Lord in his, is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. And Zephaniah chimes in in Zephaniah 1.7 Be silent before the Sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near. Let me read that again. Be silent before the Sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near. Is near. John, being a good Hebrew, being a good Jew, would know these verses. He would know these things, and in sensing and hearing this silence, would know that something immense is about to happen. This is not just a silence, this is the silence. This is the silence as all of creation stands in awe as God gets ready to unleash all His wrath. Now, of course, what do we do with the silence? It's not just that there's silence. Oh, there was silence. Of course, theologians and scholars all have opinions on what the silence is for. First few centuries of the church, people believed that the silence that was spoken of was so that God could hear the prayers of the saints that are mentioned a couple of verses later. As though God needs abject silence to hear the prayers of his kids. So they threw that out. What's the 30 minutes for? Other scholars say as the scroll that has finally been completely unsealed, this goes back to what we talked about earlier, as the scroll is finally fully unsealed, God unrolls or the Lamb unrolls and unveils His plan and as it is unveiled, all of creation, all of heaven falls silent. Or it's simply that everything that has just occurred has left all of creation speechless. But in this silence, no matter which camp you set up in, again, it doesn't really matter. Save for something big is about to happen. All of creation waits, breathless, as God prepares to unveil the rest of His wrath. Completely engaged, eyes fixed. Silence for 30 minutes. Then... An odd little ceremony begins. It says, The seven angels who stand around the throne were given seven trumpets. So, two things we have to wrestle with here. Who are these angels? Why trumpets? We'll start with the angels. Who are these seven angels? I don't know. They are either seven angels that just happen to be hanging around the throne, which in my guesstimation, is kind of where most of the angels hang out anyways. And they're selected and given seven trumpets. However, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, it talks about the angel of his presence. 
This goes back. There is, there are considered angels that stand before the throne. These angels are very specific. They have a role. Their little gang has a title. The angels of God's presence. In some theories or some theologies, they are listed off. Angels of the presence could include Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Uriel, Raguel, who started the spaghetti sauce company, Sariel and Remiel. The idea here is that the L at the end of their name, the E-L, identifies that they are angels close to God, that they are in the presence directly of the Lord. Plus, this comes from an apocryphal text known as the book of Tobit, which isn't recognized by the Protestant church uh, as canonical, but by the Catholic church, the Orthodox church, uh, do recognize it. So, do we hold on to that, or do we hold on to their angels? Take your pick. Two options. That's all I got for you today. Sorry. They get seven trumpets. Why trumpets? Because throughout Scripture, we see the trumpet being used on all sorts of occasions to announce all sorts of things. Trumpets would be used to announce war. Trumpets would be used to announce good news. Trumpets would be used to announce the entering of a king into the city. Trumpets were used at the temple in Jerusalem to call all of Israel to the temple. Trumpets are vastly significant. They mean that something is coming, something big will be announced, some sort of news is coming down, and we need to pay attention. Seven angels receive seven trumpets, and then they stand there. And then we have an eighth angel appear on the scene. And he comes wandering in, and he's got a censer. doesn't say who he is, what he does, where he's come from. He's like the little utility infield player angel, and he's got a censer. He walks in, and he's given much incense to burn. And he takes it to the altar, and he burns the incense, and the smoke from the incense, it says, rises up with the prayers of all the saints. This scene is something straight out of the tabernacle. Straight out of the temple in Jerusalem, where priests twice daily would go to the altar of the burnt offerings, take the fire, take it into the holy place, to the altar of incense, where they would light incense, and the smoke from those incense would rise up through the holy place, symbolically representing all the prayers of Israel. So in this, we have a reflection directly from God's throne room, to the tabernacle, once again. And the prayers rise up. Then it says, get back to my place. Beep. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. There came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. First, we have to deal with the issue of the prayers and the saints. What are the prayers? I don't know. It doesn't say. It literally doesn't say what the prayers are or what what they contain, but I want to ask you something. What do you pray for? And, And not what do you pray for like, I need a better pink job. I'd like a nicer car. 
What do you pray for in the depths of your heart? What do you pray for when you truly beseech God, when you're broken? Do you pray for justice? Do you pray for God to come and set things right? Do you pray for the things that God promises to bring? Do you pray for His timing? These are the prayers at the heart of what His children should want from Him. Yeah, we seek God and we seek all kinds of things and we go in supplication and we ask Him for a great number of stuff, things, whatever. But at the heart of our prayers, are we seeking for God's justice? Are we seeking for God to come and set the world right? Or are we praying, God, oh, can you wait a little while? Because i still got some stuff I need to achieve. As these prayers rise up, they rest in front of God. Prayers from the saints. Okay, which saints? Are they the martyrs under the throne? Could be. They're the ones we see crying out. They're the ones we hear their prayers. God, how long? God, when will you avenge? God, when will you seek justice? They're praying those prayers. Is it the multitude in white robe? Could be. They're the ones that are standing, singing, praising God, calling out to Him. Or is it the culmination of the prayers of all God's kids? Prayers of the saints, the martyrs in heaven, those that have gone, and those that are still here. I'll take that option. Just because of one word. It says, the prayers of all the saints. How many in all? All. There you go. Prayers of all the saints go up before God from the angels' hands. And then what do we see? God going into action. This scene I love. Because what it tells me, what it assures me, what it shows me is that as God's kids' prayers rise up to His face, He hears them and He responds. And in verse 5, we see the response. The angel then took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's kickoff time! Here we go. My kids have cried out long enough. Things are going to happen. Boom. We move. Angel takes the sensor, fills it with fire, probably looks at the other angels. You guys ready to go? Here we go. Boom! Here we go. If you were sleeping, that just woke you up. Shame on you for sleeping. And then in verse 6 it says, And the seven angels prepared to sound their trumpets. So where does that leave us? Where does that put us this morning? You see, this is what matters to me, and this is why the book of Revelation has escaped my teaching agenda for 12 years. I struggle with the application. I know we talked about that a few weeks ago because Lance said he got an email from a guy we know in the Philippines doing a Bible study. Well, how do we get through the application? And that again brings me back to how do we engage with the book of Revelation to begin with? And I would challenge you guys. 
Are you so worried about the end times? Have you garnered this apocalyptic view of what will happen? Do you have a bunker? Let's think about this. Y2K came, hit. What were people doing? Stocking up, buying guns, making shelters, selling everything. It's the end times. These are Christians doing this stuff. Really? Is that what we're about? We're a bunch of fruitcakes, buying up every kind of gun we can find, selling off all our stuff because we're going to weather the storm. We're going to shoot people. Huh? Do we get wrapped up in the idea that it's not for me? So we have the apocalyptic view of, I've got to do everything I can to weather the storm and survive. Or we have the view of, well, you know what? Rapture's going to happen right at the beginning, so I get out of it altogether. So what does it matter? Really? There is a solid middle ground to be held here. That we must tread a line. That says, should we get to go home at the beginning? Great. Praise be to Jesus who loves us and cares for us and pulled us out of it. But, at the other end of that, if we don't get to go home before everything happens and we're stuck here... Are we to wall ourselves off? Treat everybody like they're freaks and shelter ourselves? No, someone's got to go out and give the good news. That's you and I. If we're staying here, we've got to go and share. We've got to be prepared to be the people getting our heads lopped off. Sorry. Hey, that's what we get. Will we maintain the testimony of Jesus Christ that makes us a martyr? Or we hide behind closed doors? hoping that no one finds out so that we can weather the storm. Because I'm not saying my position is the most accurate, but I will say this. There is never anything wrong with deciding that I want to be Jesus with skin on. I want to be the hands and feet of Christ. The end times will come. We cannot deny that. But I will not let it push me into a place where I will hold at arm's length the world around me. The sick and the dying are here and they need Jesus. I happen to know Him. I'm going to go and share. When the end times come, once again, I want to be sure that the people I have interacted with, that I have engaged with, that I have loved on, that I have served, that I will see them when we find our home in heaven. That they will be there with me. Not because of me, but because of Christ in me. Because of the testimony that I've maintained. That we would follow at cost. Because it's all we've ever been about at this church. That as we dive into this scripture, we've all wrestled with this. How will this apply to our lives? Simply this, that it would make us hold on to the two greatest commandments more firmly that we would love the lord god with all that we have heart mind soul strength and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves that it would compel us to love christ more deeply and reflect that love into the world 
There can be nothing wrong with that. So you guys, as we walk out of here this morning, I would definitely challenge you guys that you would think that through. It's been great learning the historical facts. It's been great discovering the book of Revelation. But I pray every Sunday you walk out of here saying, how will this drive me to love Jesus more, to worship him rightly, to love the people around me, not just here in this church, not just on my block, but in this world, wherever God may take me. I guess I'm going to leave you with that. We'll pray. I'll invite the worship team back up. And uh, we'll bid you guys a good morning. God, this morning we thank you so much for your, for your being here. We thank you so much for your word, your truth. God, I thank you that you care for us. God, that in our lives, God, should we wrap ourselves around you, God, that we would lean on you, draw into you, God. The answer to the question is there. When they ask, who can stand? God, we can stand. When we are yours, we can stand. So God, I pray that those words would give us hope, would give us encouragement, God, and would challenge us to cling more tightly to you. Not in a selfish way, but God, in a way that pushes us into an area of serving and loving and engaging the world more. I pray that we'd be more like you each day. I thank you and praise you this morning for all you do and all you are. In Jesus' name, amen.